Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Today, we've reached the fourth episode in our six-part mini-season on Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 2, Tsunami Spirits. This episode will be visited by another familiar voice, director Clay Jeter. Clay was a guest on the show during our coverage of the first volume. I interviewed him about episode three, House of Terror. Tsunami Spirits is the fourth episode that Clay directed for the return of Unsolved Mysteries. Nearly 10 years ago, one of the most powerful earthquakes ever recorded devastated the northeastern coast of Japan. It generated a tsunami that at its peak reached 131 feet high. Close to 20,000 lives were lost. 2,500 more remain missing. Then, in one of the worst hit cities, people began to experience strange phenomena. Taxi drivers spoke of ghost passengers. Some even talked about being possessed by lost spirits. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire episode and then listen on. Now, before you hear my chat with Clay, take a listen to this discussion I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband, Kevin Flynn. We break down the episode and share our reactions to the real-life mystery behind it. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Rebecca. Thanks for having me back. So, Unsolved Mysteries. We're now in Volume 2. This is Episode 4. Yeah. Tsunami Spirits. Now, this is a very different kind of episode of Unsolved Mysteries, right? Yeah. Yes, I believe so. I mean, I think the tone is different. Visually, it, it is you know much uh, more different than some of the other ones that, that we've seen. And sort of, what kind of mystery are we expected to ponder exactly i think is also different yeah right now in 2011 like i remember watching the coverage of this on the news with you uh there was a devastating earthquake and tsunami in japan it killed 20,000 people and 2,500 people were left missing now in this episode we meet many residents of ishinomaki which is one of the worst communities hit and a lot of people there are experiencing Really strange phenomena. Right. Can we talk about the first act sure. of this episode, which is explaining the the earthquake that led to the tsunami mm-hmm. and the visuals around it and meeting some of the different people who lost people? I think that piece alone makes this exceptional. I think it, it's one of the more comprehensive and striking retellings of what happened that day. The visuals were incredible. And then we meet people like that guy who lost his wife and his two daughters and mm-hmm. had to, you know, they were looking for the bodies. And yeah, I mean, it certainly laid the groundwork for the seriousness of the trauma that people were dealing with. What do you think of this idea that it's this region of Japan because it developed later, because it's a little bit more disconnected from urban life mm-hmm. and technology, that there's more of a spiritual grounding there that either is ripe for real spirits to feel like they can be lost yeah, and or found, superstition or that yeah. it's more ripe for superstition and a belief in ghosts. What do you think of that? Well, I think both can be true. Hmm. You know, ultimately, this is about the way that people deal with trauma. And, you know, that also gets touched on as sort of, you know, side by side with our ghost visiting these individual people. Is it a coping mechanism? Because 
as the, the Buddhist monk explains, it's unfair when someone dies and you don't get a chance to say goodbye. But for the deceased, they also feel that it's unfair that they didn't get to say goodbye to the living. Right. So I, I, f- I find it really fascinating. And it is really, I think, a projection of a very human trauma, this idea that ghosts would come back to a place that has been completely destroyed. And we see that before and mm-hmm. after photo of this city, that it was this thriving port. And now it is just sort of this desolate stretch right. that ghosts would come back looking for their homes and they would be lost because they wouldn't be able to find them. It's so sad. Yeah, I, I mean, because literally the homes aren't there, and right. the roads are different, and the things like that, and so a survivor coming back would also have trouble, you know, recognizing uh, where it is. But there's also sort of that the symbolism of a ghost wandering, looking for a place to be in the material world. Here's the thing: these accounts are either literally true, right? Or they are true to the people who are telling them. I have no doubt that the people who are telling us these stories have lived them and believe sure. them. Like this, yeah. if, if nothing else, this is a manifestation of incredible trauma, right? Yeah. And a way of coping with it. Yeah, I don't think they're making this up. Right, but what right. do you think of somebody who says they've been able to do this their whole life? I'm just curious. Well, I think they're very sensitive to you know these kinds of stories. And so I think that uh, it must be very difficult to sort of have this gift or this talent or this curse and then to be living in a place where thousands of thousands of people suddenly die. Hmm. So we do meet a journalist in the show. He arrives in Ishinomaki in June 2011. Right. He starts hearing rumors about ghosts. I'm sure that's not why he originally went there, but he hears these stories again and again and again. And he decides to actually document all of this. What do you think of the idea of gathering data and documentation about sightings? Because we hear in the episode that, you know, there isn't this data and documentation from other mass deaths in Japan. And when I when I heard that, I was like, well, why would there be data on ghost sightings? Who would collect the data? But a journalist has decided to do that. What do you think about that endeavor? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that it seems to be common enough that people have heard about it. Hmm. So, yeah, I could see for some people that um, that would be of interest. I guess it's the only way you can, you know, measure that data is through anecdotes you hear from people. So if nothing else, I think it's worthwhile to start to gather people's different stories because they're all different and, you know, some are creepier than others and some are actually a little more heartwarming than others. And, you know, I mean, how do you explain the taxis? You know, somebody's got to talk about that. Right. Well, let's talk about that because that's another one of the accounts is that these numerous taxi drivers are picking up ghost passengers who are asking them to go to a destination. The meters are running. The drivers are driving around. So there's you know, evidence that drivers have been driving around in these empty cars. Right. And that the drivers themselves have been paying the fare. Someone's got to pay the fare. How, exactly. do, you, how yeah. do you explain that, though? I mean, is that a human phenomenon or is that a supernatural phenomenon? You know, you want to say that they're just maybe a little tired, mm. but somebody got in their cab and something happened. Right. I'm, I'm more like I, something went on with that. Right. By the way, I think that if that is true, that it's less about a ghost needing a ride to get to some place as it is about the ghost wanting to interact with that driver oh, that's for some reason. Yeah. That's very interesting. So it is a very human, close place to be with a living person. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting we hear in the episode is that in Japanese culture, grief counseling is not something that they like want to do because they're afraid they will forget. 
Yeah. So do you think, and again, of course, we are assuming that there may or may not be supernatural presences of people after their deaths. You know, I, I'll, I'll admit, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where... It's an unsolved mystery, Rebecca. It's very easy to say, like, no, of course I don't believe in ghosts. However, there is like a tremendous amount of comfort in thinking that ghosts may exist or that, you know, the spirits of people who have passed may continue on. Because I think we're all very afraid of the idea that there's just nothing after right. we die, right? Right, yeah. And for Japanese people, it seems that there's also a fear of forgetting. I can't help but wonder, is the fear of forgetting what is making the ghosts appear to this community? Or is the fact that they refuse to forget why the spirits are still there and visible to these people. You see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think you can make an argument, certainly on a non-spiritual level, that their desire to maintain that connection will come out in different ways, Hmm. whether it's, you know, weird dreams or taking a sign about a bird flying someplace or a shadow here as something maybe more than it is. But that doesn't mean that perhaps there are ghosts Because this is so unsettling for the region Hmm. that maybe there's more energy to that than would normally be if, you know, when grandma passes away. Right. How would you react if you were talking to your child that you'd lost and all of a sudden his toy lit up and responded to you? That was creepy crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Especially, you know, when it just couldn't have been uh, a malfunction. Right. Uh, Yeah. No, that's. And then part of that story is great because. The mom was feeling very depressed, mm. and this was a way that her child saved her for this world. And and, and to say, look, we're always connected. Mm. I was a little creeped out about the story about the stranger who came to the door all wet and asking for dry clothes. Talk about that. Well, okay, first of all, I, was was it a rainy night? How does I mean, if somebody shows up at my door soaking wet? I'm all, I'm very curious about that. Mm. But then they just they take the clothes and go and then in the episode we see like more faces Mm. coming to that was scary Mm. i've been thinking a lot about since we watched this episode the heart of it which is this reverend as they call him in translation this Buddhist monk sort of the center of his community he has a story of a, a young woman coming to him and we see her on camera although she's disguised i believe her name is ami she's um talks about really being invaded by a bunch of these spirits. And the story that she tells him is about a young girl who was running away with her brother and had to let go of his hand. And when she recounts that story, we really get this monk kind of at the center of this talking about his efforts to outreach and heal people. And this was a healing that had to happen. And what did you think of that whole scene? Ami sounds like a very interesting character that we meet uh, what, every night at 7 o'clock, roughly, she would run to the, the temple because she was possessed by another spirit. Mm-hmm. And so the goal was to, you know, uh, provide peace and tranquility to that spirit. Mm-hmm. So it does kind of dovetail with what his work in the community seems to be, which is coming to terms with what happened. Mm. And I think seeing... uh the monk do his own recreations with his wife. Oh yeah, I thought you know lended a, you know a sense of realism, right? Where I you know was t- 
taken to that place. Well, there is something about, you know, you think about the mechanics of it. Here we have this Buddhist temple and he's allowing this camera crew to come in and these this director to come in and this film, you know, it's, a, it's a, probably a lot of people and probably feels very different than the rhythm of their daily lives in this place. And the willingness to tell the story on camera, even though he says, you know, scientists hate it that we talk about this. Right. Logic hates it that we talk about this. You know, religious people hate it that we talk about this, but I know that it's important and it's important to work through and important for this community to experience and feel and I'm a part of it. I found that incredibly moving. Yeah, and you know, one other thing I'll say is if you think that um, a single house is haunted by a person Mm. or that, you know, then you think like a graveyard is haunted by dozens of ghosts, then this town you know, is haunted by thousands. So mm. whatever energy is in that house, in that graveyard, is just multiplied by these mass graves and the trauma around the people in the sudden way that their loved ones were lost and the ways that they couldn't mourn and, you know, the trying to balance their feelings with the feeling of perhaps guilt that they're going to forget that person. Mm. Also, at the very end, when they were talking about the photos... You know, I sort of forgot when we were watching the video of the tsunami, all the property destruction, houses moving away, floating downstream. And when that happens, people lose a lot of the items that they normally would use to mourn with and remember the people, like photographs and other trinkets. and, And that, you know, I think probably also lends to the trauma that they're not able to address Mm. by not having those things. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm really glad that I got to watch it with you. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Kevin Flynn for joining me. You are my favorite person to watch Netflix with. Kevin is an Emmy Award-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author, and co-host of my other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On. He also hosts the show These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. Now, Here's my interview with director Clay Jeter. Clay, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. It's so great to talk with you again. Oh, likewise. Happy to be here. Now, this is the first ghost story in the show's return, and you've directed three episodes, House of Terror, Missing Witness, and you co-directed Death Row Fugitive, the Lester Eubanks story we just talked about. So you've done two fugitive stories, a missing person story, and now a ghost story. And I'm curious what your reaction was when you realized you were doing this type of unsolved mystery. Yeah, well, you know, before working on Unsolved Mysteries, I'd never done anything really like any of those types of stories. Hmm. You know, what attracted me to Unsolved Mysteries in the first place was probably more the true crime stuff. Um, Just because over the last several years, true crime has just exploded. and I've spent so much time listening to it on podcasts or watching it on TV or watching documentary films about true crime. And so the opportunity to, you know, to try to see if I could direct one myself and what that would be like, it just was all over my consciousness, you know. And I'm not someone who has traditionally been obsessed with ghost stories or the supernatural or even horror films or anything like that. Um, But when I came in and I started talking to the showrunners about, you know, the types of shows that they were doing and what they saw me doing, this episode came up early on. And I have to say that as soon as they told me about it, I found it just absolutely fascinating compelling, interesting. I mean, like all of Unsolved Mysteries, there's this heaviness and this seriousness and you have to, 
approach these stories with caution and with respect. Um, and at the same time, I just felt like there was so much raw emotion and power in this particular tragic event and the stories that came in the wake of it that it, it just seemed like something I had to go and do. It's interesting because earlier when I spoke to you about the House of Terror episode, we talked about filming internationally, not in your native language. But this time you're going to a place with such a deep scar of trauma uh, this March, March 2021, will mark the 10th anniversary of the earthquake and tsunami. You know, I remember when this unfolded. I remember watching the footage on TV and being horrified. And just the scale of tragedy is almost unimaginable. What was it like to be there and to spend so much time in this city that was hit so hard by this disaster? Yeah, um, nothing can prepare you for actually being there in person. So to give you a, a sense of it, we were prepping from L.A. And certainly I was watching videos um, from 2011 and we were seeing some photos of potential shooting locations and and talking with a few people, you know, uh, over Zoom and phone calls and, and stuff like that. But nothing really prepares you for walking out into an area that used to be filled with neighborhoods, family homes, streets and sidewalks, playgrounds, and seeing just an endless flat patch of dirt, a construction site. Um, it was really shocking because, you know, I understood what it had looked like before. I understood what the images of the tsunami itself looked like. It was very difficult to imagine if you've seen that imagery how any place comes back from that what what that even looks like um and i knew that they'd been spending the last nine years very aggressively rebuilding and so i i feel like i was expecting to see more evidence of what was there before mixed with all of these new buildings and new constructions um and kind of seeing that duality i guess but to walk in and just see these just big empty expanses of nothing um it was really stark and yeah it was very very powerful and i think just being grounded so hard by that imagery really did set the tone for me and and for our team in terms of how we were going to proceed with with respect it is interesting. I mean, I, the thing that I remember so clearly about that particular disaster is that there was some time between the earthquake and the tsunami. So there was time for people to set up to film the disaster, which kind of came in and it initially appeared very slow motion, very foreboding, you know, this big wave. And then when you look at what you're looking at, the footage, some of which you included in your episode, you see cars and homes, like what looks like a wave. You realize the scale, you can't even imagine it because that's that's a home. That's an office building. That's 30 cars kind of rolling along. And then in the frame, you also see people running. You see cars driving on roads that you know are going to be overtaken. Did you feel like you re-experienced some of what that community felt like and experienced as you were sifting through this footage and trying to really capture for the Unsolved Mysteries audience what happened that day? Not a chance. 
no way did I re-experience it, you know? Um, mm. There's only so much that that footage can do, and I can't, I I could never begin to really imagine what it must have felt like to legitimately feel see this happening feel your own life in danger have questions about other people in your life and your community and your family not necessarily being able to talk to them and understand exactly where they are and what's going on with them and if they're okay it's so different um sitting behind a computer and watching watching footage um that happened years ago um just I'm just not that imaginative I guess um so I would say no I wasn't able to do that um but just to talk about the nature of the devastation I I was struck by how complete and total and powerful it really was um the tsunami when it comes through it just obliterates everything and I mean a hurricane it comes and it's oh it's raining a little bit it picks up and it it kind of builds into this thing and it dumps tons of rain and it does it can do a lot of destruction the tsunami you can see the line of it right you can in that footage you can see the line of the water and it's carrying an entire town on its back and it's moving it in fiery burning pieces from one location miles and miles away and dropping the remnants somewhere else. I mean, it will pull the pavement up off of what used to be a street and leave nothing behind. The destruction and displacement that it does is unlike anything I've ever seen before. You know, to be able to say, as soon as this tsunami has come through and then receded, there's no landmarks from where I used to live, where my house even was. The street that I lived on might be displaced and removed. Mm. It's crazy to wrap your head around how a place and a community can just be wiped clean, just like that. Now, there are a lot of people with a lot of accounts that I'm sure you encountered because everybody in this community was affected. And unlike other kinds of mysteries, This one really relies on the personal, intimate details and accounts from people and their own interpretations of those accounts. And I'm curious, how did you decide when you were sifting through all of these accounts, which stories would be the stories to recreate and tell in this episode? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You're right. There were over 15,000 confirmed deaths, over 2,000 people who are still missing from this. And you think about all of the people who were affected by those losses. I mean, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds. How do you choose? Where do you start? You know? Um, So one of the things that became clear to us um, when we were looking for some kind of record, you know, something that was grounded in the record, um, we were attracted to taxi drivers. Hmm. The taxi drivers have their own kind of record in that they have a meter. And you see many, many taxi drivers, not just one person, several different taxi drivers who all have multiple experiences where they picked someone up. You know, this happened time and time again. They would get close to their destination. Maybe they would get to their destination. And all of a sudden, the passenger who was in their back seat this entire ride for, you know, minutes sometimes close to an hour when they would do these really long trips they would see this person in their car for a long time and then that person's gone and someone has to pay that fare 
And ultimately, what was discovered was that the taxi drivers, you know, when they have an unexplained fare, they have to pay it themselves, you know, um, to the company. And then also, as we discuss in the episode, a lot of the taxi drivers recognize this as something that they could do to support their community, to help their community heal, you know, um, to do service to the spirits, you know, if, if that's what they believed they were doing um, by actually taking these rides knowingly and then paying the fares. So that was a place to start that had a kind of record, you know. Um, yeah. After that, I would say Reverend Kaneda was someone that became a very clear choice for us. We knew that he, he was going to be central to this episode. After the tsunami happened, Reverend Kaneda's kind of entire trajectory as a reverend sort of altered and it was completely devoted to what happened in that tsunami, to the people that were affected, to the lives that were lost, to the healing that needed to be done. That became sort of everything for him. And it's well documented that he dove dove in head first. He was really open to engaging with people, to trying to, to help people in any way that he could, and ultimately to do what you see in the episode with Ami, which, you know, maybe I'm getting the language wrong, but is, is a kind of exorcism. And not just for her, but right. for other people came to him with this same problem. They felt like they were being inhabited by spirits and they needed to figure out how to get these spirits out of their bodies so that they could, you know, live their lives. It was so fascinating to me, you know, when he talked about, you know, the scientists hate this. Even the religious people hate this. They ask why I'm doing this. And it really is clear he really sees this as a sacred duty of sorts, right, to help people confront these uh, what seem like paranormal phenomena and help them get through it, like similarly to how he'd help somebody going through a trauma that they had lived in body, right? That's right. I think that Reverend Kaneda feels like his fundamental duty and purpose is to help people with whatever they're struggling with, whatever they're battling with. Um, and he's just extremely open-minded about what's valid and how how to help, you know? Um, you know, he's got such an incredible story, and there's only a tiny fraction of that in the episode because, again, the episode is, what is it? I don't know, 45 minutes or something. Um, and there could be an entire feature film just about Reverend Kaneda and his story. And there was certainly a time where we were trying to wrap our heads around how do we tell Reverend Kaneda's life journey that has got him to where he is right now as one arc of this episode and also do justice to all of these other aspects of the story that we want to dig into and that we want to talk about. And ultimately, there just wasn't enough room for all of that. But when the tsunami happened, you know, Reverend Kaneda's focus became crystallized. There's an incredible moment in his life that has a lot of weight for him that, again, didn't make the episode where he got together with some other spiritual leaders of different religions, right? And they believe different things, and they all decided to get together and go for kind of a prayer walk 
through the newly devastated disaster area and they went into the heart of the destruction and, you know, whatever your religion was, whatever your creed was as a spiritual leader, you did what you felt you needed to do um, in this space. And Reverend Kaneda was just bowled over, you know, and he was just so affected by this experience. And we have footage of it. We have photographs of it. We built scenes out of it that didn't make the film. Um, He was so affected by this that it, it really shifted everything for him. And he just committed his his life to helping people in the wake of this tragedy. And so I think there's a really powerful film about a really incredibly interesting human being. Um, that's the Reverend Kaneda story. And we got a little taste of it in this episode, but we didn't get the whole picture, you know? Well, the central character that we see interacting with him and his recollection that you spoke to was Ami, that woman who went to Reverend Kaneda for help because she felt she was being possessed by multiple ghosts. She tells you this very haunting story about two children running away from the tsunami and a young girl who let go of her brother's hand and and came back to apologize for having abandoned him. What was it like talking with a reverend about her and then talking with her about that experience? And is she still experiencing anything anything now that you're aware of? Um, as far as I know, Ami is not having these experiences to this day. But I don't know that for sure. You know, you, you would have to talk to her, which is going to be hard because her identity is, right. is hidden. Um, but Reverend Kaneda had these kinds of experiences with a lot of different people. You know, he does single out Ami by saying that the degree to which she was experiencing this, the way it manifested in her was different, was unique, maybe even more frequent and more powerful and more transformative. Certainly it changed her in that it would change her voice. It would change her physicality depending upon who was inhabiting her at that time. So Reverend Kaneda, you know, made it very clear to us that if we were going to speak to someone who had a really intense and dramatic version of this experience, which is intense and dramatic for anyone, let's, you know, to be clear, that this would this would be the person. So um yeah, it was re- it was something that was really just wild to think about. You know, it's the kind of thing that I've seen in in f- movies, you know, in horror movies, maybe even period pieces. Um, it's not something that I've come across in my real life, um, not something that I've ever gotten anywhere close to. So that was really a unique experience. Um, and I took my cues from Reverend Kaneda to just be open, you know, just to listen and believe people for what they are experiencing. They're having an experience that is real to them. And that's really as far as I need to go in order to be able to engage with them on a human to human level, you know? And I think Reverend Kaneda puts it really perfectly in the episode when he says, yeah, scientists think about it this way and they say, oh, there's a scientific explanation and, and any other entertaining any other anything else would be ridiculous. And psychologists think of it another way and say, well, there's a psychological explanation for why people think these experiences are happening to them and to entertain anything else is ridiculous. Hmm. Um, And for 
for Reverend Canada, he's not saying they're all wrong. Ghosts are super real. They just don't get it. That's not his angle. He says, I, I don't really care about any of that. You know, yeah, you're a psychologist. Of course, you see the world in terms of the human brain's interpretation of the world and how the human brain is trying to make connections and turn something into a story that is valuable for the human experience. And, and sure, a scientist looks at the, the facts, at what's observable, you know? He's like, I am just going to talk to these people and be very open to what they're experiencing. Their experience is clearly very real to them. It affects them in a profound way. And that is reason enough for me to get involved and try to help. I actually think as a viewer that I got there too. I mean, we hear in the episode that it's not part of Japanese culture to go to say grief counseling because there is a fear, a deep fear of forgetting one's lost loved ones. We hear that this town was wiped off the map, that people died very suddenly in complete terror. And then the manifestations of these spirits that people are seeing, the two threads that come up over and over again is that the ghosts either don't know that they're dead or, or and, they don't know where they're going. They're lost because their home looks different and the landmarks they recognize are gone. And either these are real encounters or they are manifestations of trauma and a way of coping with not being able to want to forget, but also understanding one has to move on and, and, and finish the story. Either way, they're really important, right? I mean, is that your interpretation of those two threads of people who don't know they're dead and people who can't find their way home? Is that how you see it too? Well, I think that, as you mentioned, everything is totally destroyed. And not only that, people who lost their lives in the tsunami were washed away miles from where they were. They were just there. They were just at home. They were just on their street. They were just at their school, at their job. And now they're somewhere completely different. And the people that are usually around them every day that they encounter on their days are no longer there. The The indicators of where they are, it's all unrecognizable. So I think that certainly makes sense for for that that aspect of the story of not knowing where you are. I also think that it's kind of common in stories about spirits who are still, you know, walking the earth and are interacting with the living, um, this idea that they don't realize that they have died. Um, we've seen it in so many different types of stories. And, um, you know, why is something so ubiquitous, you know? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not going to get get into all of that, but I do think that there's something to this idea that in an instant you were here and then you were gone. Maybe there's something to that. You know, the idea that like you don't realize that you've you've died. But to the second part of your question, the other aspect that I think came comes up is this sort of the idea that there's a binary here, right? That either ghosts are real and they are showing up and tr and having these encounters with the living or ghosts are not real and that there are psychological and scientific explanations for everything and i can't imagine that it's that simple hmm. you know i think that 
from what I have experienced in life so far, and I'm not a scientist and I'm not a psychologist, you know, I'm not um, a medium. So I'm not an expert in any of this field. You know, I'm a filmmaker, but I feel like the truth is, is that the universe is wild and complicated and unfathomable. And what we don't know about the universe and how it works is infinitely larger than what we do know and understand about it. Even our own brains, which I think our entire existence as human beings, it kind of feels like our job is to attempt to understand ourselves. And I don't think we're ever going to even understand our own minds, our own brains, our own bodies, how they work is just beyond our capacity to do. So I think there's a lot that we don't understand out there, you know, and I don't think it is a binary situation. I think that is too simple. I think that it comes at it from every direction. There is science. There is observable facts. There are things that you can document and there are laws to the universe that you can uncover that can explain a lot of things. There is the human mind that is doing really incredible things to try to take information in and create a story and create a sense of self and create a purpose and a reason for being that allows human beings to make their way through their lives and continue into the future. And there are massive amounts of things that we just don't understand and as humanity are never going to understand. And I think that all of those things can coexist and are probably all players in whatever happened in Ishinomaki. I agree with you. It's funny because I think it's easy to approach a story like this and say, you know, of course people who are traumatized and are missing their loved ones and don't want to let them go are seeing manifestations of them everywhere. Of course the mother whose toy inexplicably turned on uh, is going to assign a different explanation to it because she doesn't want to let go of her child. Uh, But anybody else who didn't believe that would just say, oh, it was the batteries, you know, glitching or whatever. So it's so easy to come in with those kinds of judgments that are based on skepticism and science and needing, you know, proof and all of those things. But it is also when you watch a show like this, in a way, it invites you to open your mind to the possibility that perhaps if it's not binary and there is energy left of people on Earth after they die, that perhaps that energy is more visible to people who are willing to see it. And perhaps it's not just an imaginary manifestation of grief and trauma, but because they are able to see it, they do see it. I kept thinking that uh, over and over again. And I wondered, you know, when you were directing this episode, did you go in thinking one thing and come out thinking another the way that I did as a viewer even watching it? I will say that I was not someone who had spent enough time grappling with the question of ghosts and whether they're real or not to have firmly solidified a position one way or the other. That said, I am probably more the kind of person, like Professor Kanabishi says, he says, I'm not the kind of person who would see ghosts. And to your point, it's like, what does that mean? It means that 
you have a right. you have a you you are unwilling mentally to have that experience and therefore maybe it's impossible for you to have that experience or extraordinarily unlikely for you to have that experience because you don't want it or or you had that experience but you would say it wasn't exactly that, you'll right? explain it away oh the house was just creaking not my deceased relatives are talking to me you know through the walls of my house so absolutely i think that that's that's part of it you know when i came into this i would say i didn't think okay here's my chance to go to a place with all of these ghost experiences to definitively make it clear one way or another that either these people are all lying and they're making stuff up and this is some kind of conspiracy or there's some kind of something in the water that's making people hallucinate and we're going to go and uncover you know we're going to we're going to shut this whole ghost or real thing down once and for all i also didn't go out there saying you know as a as a firm believer in ghosts saying finally i have this opportunity to share with the rest of the world the truth that i know to be true about the existence of ghosts and they're going to see undeniably that ghosts are real you know when i was approached about this story I thought about the people that we were going to go and spend our time with. I didn't go to a Shinomaki looking for ghosts. I went there looking for human stories. And that's what I focused on. What were the human experiences of the people that I can talk to today? What happened to them? What were their experiences? How are they feeling now? That's what I was looking for. I wasn't there to settle the question once and for all about whether ghosts are real or not. So, Clay, I'm wondering if there was a ghost encounter story that didn't make it into the episode that you really wish you could have included. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, there were there were so many stories. Um, one of the stories that comes to mind that for me was very powerful and I really wish could have made it in the episode. If you if you watch the footage, there's a couple of shots. I think it's when um, Kansho is talking about how she saw ghosts. Um, and she talks about a, a kind of transparent reflection in a window, I think. And there's an imagery of a silhouette of a woman and a small child. And in the foreground, there's a man laying down in his bed, presumably looks like he's asleep and then later i think we see him sitting up well actually this was a story that i found really poignant and really touching and this was not a traditional kind of ghost encounter it wasn't a waking ghost encounter so this subject he lost his wife and his daughter and he realized relatively early on that he would see them in his dreams and of course he thought well, I'm just I'm just dreaming. But there were occurrences that went on, and I don't know all of the specifics, but the bottom line is there were interactions that he had while sleeping with this dream image of his wife that convinced him that it wasn't just a manifestation from his own mind of her, but rather that he was actually being visited by her ghost in his dream state. And that's the way that she was accessing his consciousness and having these conversations and interactions with him. And what to me was so touching about this is this man 
wanted to be with his wife and his daughter so much that he lived to sleep. All he wanted to do was go to sleep so that he could spend time with his family who he believed were real. And he would wake up and he would hurriedly, feverishly draw the image of what he saw in these dreams. And so he would do this every single night and he would talk very specifically about how she looked in these dreams. I think when he talks about it, she appeared as kind of an image that almost felt like TV static and that and that she was this 3D creation out of TV static and he had these drawings. Um, we had a lot of conversations about this particular um, scenario and at the end of the day, it was kind of decided it's a dream story. It's just not obviously a ghost story, so it doesn't make the cut, you know, but that's one that I found really powerful. So this episode is unique. It doesn't end with a call for tips. There's no mystery such as, you know, asking viewers, do ghosts exist or not? But there are so many deep questions that we've talked about. And I'm wondering, what do you hope viewers take away from watching this episode? What actions do you hope that they will take Instead of saying, calling a tip hotline or sending notes into the Unsolved Mysteries website, what do you want people to take? For me, as a storyteller, I hope that people can have a real experience of human empathy when they watch this episode, that they can connect with these people, that they can be moved, that they can be affected, and that it can be an experience that they live with, you know, and that they take away. And, and in what way does that alter your way of thinking, your behavior? I don't usually get that specific with my goals or agendas as a filmmaker. Um, so I don't have the answer to that as much. But I will say that one thing that I think could come out of this is very specifically with the region of Tohoku and the community of Ashinomaki. And Ashinomaki is not the only town that was absolutely decimated by this disaster. There were lots of places, places, even smaller places that were really coastal that were destroyed in much higher percentages than Ashinomaki. Ashinomaki is a big city, right? So there were a lot of lives lost there, but there are also a lot more lives that were spared. There are communities that were right on the ocean that were wiped out where there were more, more lives lost than there were survivors. And that's really, you know, wild to think about as well. So, you know, I hope that on the one hand, it might just raise awareness for some people who maybe heard about this as a blip on the news and you get so overwhelmed by seeing stuff that's just news footage, you know, a disaster here, a disaster there, a number of lives lost, um, and you get a bit numb to it. But when you get to spend time with people, people like Mr. Sasaki, Mr. Sasaki, the man in the episode who he was away. He was a construction worker, and he was away on a construction site um, inland when the disaster struck. And after the disaster struck, all the roads were closed, and he couldn't get home by car. And so he spent two days walking through an incredible wasteland of devastation, very difficult terrain to maneuver. He even spent the night in some, I think it was maybe a, an old elementary school up on a hill or some kind of shelter one night to get his way. And this is through the snow and the cold to get his way back to his house. And of course he found first the body of his eldest daughter hanging in the bamboo trees. He, he found her. 
he saw her right there and pulled her down himself. I mean, can you imagine that? No. And then his wife was found a couple of miles away. And then they found his youngest daughter, his, his baby daughter. He had a wife and two daughters. They were gone. His home, gone. Right? He lost everything. And when you spend a little bit of time with Mr. Sasaki, who was so brave to open up with us and share his emotion, especially in a culture where construction worker men in the Tohoku region of Japan are just not known for being emotionally open and vulnerable. And he was able to do that, you know, with us. I I hope that that really affects people and sinks in and they can think about what happened here with a level of respect and, um, and just empathize and just connect with other people, people on the other side of the world, maybe, you know, I hope it just kind of has sort of a profound effect on you as a viewer to think about all of these people around the world, you know, who have experienced these incredible traumas, experienced loss of experienced grief, and just kind of connect and, and empathize and just feel for each other for a little while. Because I think that there's there's just value in that. I think it, it changes the way that you move through the world. Well, Clay, the episode is called Tsunami Spirits. I took all of those things away from it and more. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We've reached the end of this week's episode. Many thanks again to our guest, Clay Jeter. For more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On, True Crime Review. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 2, Episode 5, Lady in the Lake. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.